of us at some point in our lives have received the benefits of Medicare, whether that's bulk billing a doctor's appointment or receiving a more serious hospital procedure free. When Medicare was introduced in the early 80s, the Minister for Health, Dr Neil Blewett, described it as a simple, fair, affordable insurance system that provides basic health cover to all Australians. But what about a simple, fair, affordable aged care system that provides basic cover to all older Australians? We have Medicare, so why not a universally funded aged care system? I'm Kat Clay, Head of Digital Communications, and with me today is one of my favourite podcast guests, Annika Stobart, an associate with the Health Program. Welcome back, Annika. Thanks, Kat. So you've just released your latest report, The Next Steps for Aged Care, Forging a Clear Path After the Royal Commission. The report is the third in a series on aged care, and we've talked about this previously in the podcast. This report seeks to outline a way forward from the findings of the Royal Commission into Aged Care Quality and Safety. So we've previously done podcasts on how to reform aged care. So today I specifically want to focus on what a Medicare-style system would look for aged care and how it would be funded and what this means for everyday Australians. But first up, I think we should probably cover a little bit of ground from the Royal Commission and they identified a shortfall in aged care funding. So how much was it and, and why is there a shortfall? So the Royal Commission did not cost their proposals, unfortunately, of a needs-based aged care system that would provide high-level care at home as well. So we don't know exactly how much the system that they proposed would cost. But the one figure that did appear in their report was a $9.8 billion shortfall in spending in 2018-19, which is significant given that overall spending in that year was $20 billion. So although we don't get the details of their exact methodology for coming to this number, they say that this underspend comes from rationing by successive governments over the last 20 years uh, of age care, on aged care spending. So this includes the efficiency dividend, but also inadequate indexation of funding levels where subsidies have been indexed at a lower rate than provider input costs. So this goes to the Commission's broader argument that a major cause for failings in the current system is this ration-based top-down system where government is primarily concerned about how much it is willing to spend rather than what is actually needed to provide good quality care. And uh, one of my favourite quotes coming out of the report, if you allow me, was that they said the funding is determined irrespective of the level of need and without sufficient regard to whether funding is adequate to deliver quality care. So that, I think, sums it up quite nicely. And I think I've mentioned this before, this comes in line with the fact that Australia spends less uh, on a GDP basis on aged care than other countries that have a high-functioning aged care system, such as you know, Japan, Denmark, Sweden. We might suspect, we know, but what are the consequences of an underfunded system? So underfunding is particularly problematic in aged care when we're talking about people who are some of the most vulnerable people in our community. They are they're people who are frail, they are people who are struggling to live independently, who are isolated, maybe lonely, they might have dementia. 
Uh, so they cannot afford not to get care or miss out altogether. And so we have this system that is letting uh, older Australians not get the care they need. And that's why we're seeing these these horrible stories come out from the Royal Commission uh, where there's a, there's a lot of substandard care and neglect and so on. And a, a lot of this is obviously there's other reasons such as poor government leadership and, you know, poor regulation. A major consequence of this underspend is seen in the famous home care waiting list where we still have nearly 100,000 people waiting for a care package at their assessed level of need and many waiting more than 12 months. And this means that people have an increased risk of going into residential care sooner rather than later and we've also seen people dying while waiting for the care that they need. So this cost-constraint approach is not acceptable and when funding is squeezed so also is the quality of care and one of the two royal commissioners found that he said this is a quote limitations on funding have been a major contributor to the substandard care so many older Australians experience and you can see that reflected in statistics around our system we have low age care staffing levels compared to other countries Research found that more than half of Australia's aged care facilities have unacceptably low levels of staffing and only 1.3% have staffing levels that are considered best practice. A 2019 survey of nearly 3,000 aged care staff in Australia found that the greatest concern for 91% of respondents was having insufficient staff to meet residents' basic needs. And on top of this, staff are also lowly paid. Uh, to reduce their labour costs, some providers increasingly rely on personal care workers rather than more trained nurses who are paid more. So this all combines into, I think, why well, we had a Royal Commission and and a key thing we need to be seeing from the government is uh, boosting its spending on aged care. So Annika, given that money is tight in the wake of the COVID-19 recovery, where should this money come from? This is a really critical question now before government. So where should this money come from? Should it come from taxpayers or should it come from users of aged care? And the Royal Commission in its final report made its choice clear. It said users should not have to bear the burden of their care, just as the government, uh, through Medicare, pays for patients' costs in public hospitals. So this doesn't mean that users should make any contributions at all. They still ought to pay for their ordinary cost of living. So this is, you know, their accommodation, their meals, gardening, just as they would have had to have paid for or done it themselves before they needed care. But a more consistent way to pay for these costs would reduce some government spending. Australia has a universal health system, Medicare, and the vast bulk of GP services involve no out-of-pocket costs for patients. So the same is true for disability services. So a universal aged care system would be similar. So both Commissioner Briggs and Pagoni proposed a new funding model for aged care in the Royal Commission. How is your recommendation different or similar or goes further than this? The Royal Commissioners both identified a levy on personal income, and I think we talked about this in our previous podcast, as a way to finance some or all of the costs of aged care. There were technical differences, and Commissioner Briggs in particular identified a 1% aged care levy on personal income tax as a way to share the costs across the community. And this would raise about $8 billion a year and cost the median taxpayer about 610 per year. Other tax measures targeted at wealthier older Australians would also help ensure 
inter- and intra-generational equity in funding a better aged care system. And these are things that the Royal Commission did not go into, but we think because the costs are so large, there must be multiple ways to finance it. And the government is really the one that needs to decide the best way to go about this increased spending. Other sources that we identified are, for example, changing the pension assets test. So currently the average household headed by someone aged 65 to 74 now has more than $1.3 million in net assets. And that figure has more than doubled in the past two decades. So counting more of the value of the home in the pension assets tests above some threshold, say 500000 would make the pension fairer and it could save up to $2 billion a year, which then could be reallocated to HK. And I should note that this would not mean people would be forced out of their homes uh, as the money could just be drawn as a loan from the asset and then repaid after the uh, person has passed away. And the other one I should mention as well is that uh, there's a lot of potential in winding back excessively generous tax breaks for older Australians and superannuation, which result in only one in six over over 65 paying any income tax. So superannuation earnings in retirement are currently untaxed for people with superannuation balances of less than $1.6 million. So we propose that that should be taxed at 15%, the same as superannuation earnings before retirement. So this would improve budget balances by about $6 billion a year and much more in the future. Now, you've already addressed the issue that I think a lot of people have concerns around, which is that, you know, the potential loss of a home. I'm sure that there'll be a lot of questions around the potential proposal to increase tax on on superannuation in retirement. But let's put it in perspective. I mean, if you get this $10 billion, um, the shortfall funded, what could this money do? If channeled the right way, it could do a lot. There's a real potential here to fix a lot of the problems in this system. So, for example, we could clear the 100-person waiting list and we could see everyone receive the care they need within 30 days, which was the timeline that the Royal Commission recommended. We could allow people to stay at home for longer, which is what the vast majority of older people want, so providing high-level care at home. We could boost the aged care workforce where extra spending could create 70,000 more jobs for carers and that could provide um, minimum care hours for residents per day. We could provide a much easier system to navigate with thousands of care finders located across Australia that provide face-to-face support to older Australians to get services in their local area that meet their preferences. This was also a recommendation by the Royal Commission. And we could also make the system more transparent with stricter monitoring and better compliance to ensure the taxpayer money is actually spent on high-quality care and not provider profits. I want to talk a little bit about this idea of universal aged care because there are a few who would criticise Medicare now. I mean, we've had it for so long. But at the time and potentially now with the suggestion of a universal aged care, some people might consider it a little bit socialist. Isn't it better for older people to use their own money that they've uh, saved up for to provide for their own care? I understand his argument and it's it's true that many old Australians have the capacity to pay more as highlighted earlier, but going down a user pays approach has many downsides. And if you if you bear with me, I want to go through five key points. So firstly, saying that older people should pay for their care as ageing and frailty is a predictable future cost doesn't fully stack up. So the federal government's retirement income review found that many retirees and net savers 
They die with most of their retirement savings still intact, in large part because they are concerned about future health and aged care costs. So universal funding would actually reduce the need for these precautionary savings in older age because they wouldn't need to worry about how they're going to fund for their possible care needs. Some people need a lot of care and others need little or none at all. And then this is not always predictable. We don't know if we're going to get dementia in older age, which could result in many years of care. The universal approach would provide insurance for people with high care needs and ensure this also horizontal equity between older Australians. Not making users pay lifts this burden from frailer, sicker and generally poorer people who need the services and instead spreads it across taxpayers, especially wealthier people who generally pay more tax. So that's point one. Point two is critics say that it could also result in you know, out-of-control spending as it comes with moral hazards, this idea that people will consume more if it has a zero price. But eliminating user contributions for care costs has little moral hazard because funding will be based on an independent assessment of a person's needs going through a criteria process. So I'll just uh, butt yeah, in there, but like, we don't just go to the doctors for fun because we have Medicare. We're not just lining up at the doctor's surgery to get checked out every other day. I mean, I don't know about you, but I certainly try to avoid going to the doctor whenever possible, avoid going to the hospital whenever possible. So if, I feel like it's a bit of a moot argument to say that, oh, people are going to abuse the system just because yeah. it's there. Yeah. And a good level of care is a good level of care. We also propose that this funding should be reasonable and necessary. So this is fun, uh, language we also see in the, the National Disabil- Disability Insurance Scheme where there's kind of an upper limit on how, what we define as need. And so if that's covered off, it, 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 it should address those concerns. The third point is that critics then say, well, a means-tested approach should take care of any of the equity issues where you know government steps in for those who have less means to cover some of their care costs. No matter how good means testing arrangements are, a user pay system inevitably results in some people missing out on needed care, especially more vulnerable people like those that are just above income cutoffs. And means testing also creates a barrier to access, making people jump through a lot of hoops and paperwork in order to get the care that they need. And we already have a means testing approach in aged care today, and it's it's very complex and, and can be inequitable, especially in, in home care. The fourth point is that critics then say, well, making the taxpayer pay would increase intergenerational equity as younger people uh, would have to pay for the care of wealthier old Australians who have the capacity to pay. And I get that. There are intergenerational equity issues here. But we don't think these issues should be addressed through a direct user pays model for aged care. And this should be actually addressed by a broader tax system. And these are some of the recommendations I outlined earlier around addressing you know, the pension assets test and, and the super tax breaks. And just lastly, I want to also note that a universal approach to aged care is not unusual. Other countries such as Denmark and Sweden who have really high functioning aged care systems have universal coverage of aged care. So imagine creating an aged care system that we can take pride in just like we do with Medicare. Thanks, Annika. Now, we've talked about the numbers here for a bit, but I'm wondering how these funding changes would affect things on the ground and affect the system in a very practical way. So if I was an older Australian faced with going into aged care or my choices at a point where I needed to access the aged care in the universal system, what would they look like? Yeah, so these are some of the things I touched on in the previous question where it would make access to the system just so much easier. You could uh, take comfort 
as an individual and the fact that you know that you can get the needed care. So rather than going through all these hoops and multiple assessments that we currently have in the current system, there should be a streamlined assessment process that just provides you and guarantees you the independently assessed uh, care that you need. And so the other thing as well is that you don't have then to worry about having the money and the savings in order to pay for your good care. And a lot of stress comes comes with that for a lot of people who, who realise that they are going to need care in older age. And so they don't have to go through this confusing means testing process and just trust that uh, the system will guarantee high quality care for you. And I was going to actually uh, pull out a quote from what the commissioner said. So providing a universal system needs to be enshrined in, in a new age care act. And in recommendation one, the commissioners say that this new age care act, which should be rights-based, should provide a system of age care based on a universal right to high quality, safe and timely support and care to assist older people to live an active, self-determined and meaningful life and ensure older people receive high quality care in a safe and caring environment for dignified living in old age. And I think that kind of encapsulates it well. It's saying that older Australians have rights to have meaningful lives in older age. And so we should have a universal system that can provide for that. Say I get you your $10 billion. Having all this extra money is pretty good, right? Uh, Should we just dump it into the current system and see what happens? Absolutely not. Uh, yeah, you've, you've picked up on a good point there. The current system has many flaws as identified by the Royal Commission. So just channeling more money uh, into the current system, it'll just disappear or go into the wrong things with the wrong emphasis. So we actually need to make sure that we have the right governance structures in place, the right accountability systems in place uh, so that money actually goes to good quality care and That also requires, obviously, transparency to show that taxpayer money is spent in the right way, Uh, but it also requires good governance and transparency about what we're getting out of the system. We need better quality indicators and uh, comparisons between uh, provider performance made transparent to individuals. In terms of governance structures, we need independent pricing mechanisms that set prices that actually reflect the cost of care and better wages. We need independent regulation to make sure that providers are meeting the standards that we set and uh, good compliance uh, that helps providers also to improve their practices over time. So there are, there's a whole suite of things that need to come into place to ensure that uh, the money is spent properly and uh, it'll take a while to um, to get arrangements right. Well, I'll let you know if I come into $10 billion anytime soon. We can fix the aged care system together. So these are all radical overhauls. This is a big, bold proposal. How long would it take to change the system and and where do we start? Good question. The Royal Commission uh, set out a five-year timeline. So that is firstly, you know, short-term fixes to how things are currently working. So, for example, in the short term, clear the waiting list. Uh, before we then transition in a few years' time to a better kind of system to get care at home. Some reforms might take even longer than five years. So, for example, uh, workforce reform needs a real long view as the population ages. Uh, But the bulk of the things can be done over the next five years and we should be doing things as soon as possible because we have seen the statistics of the number of uh, issues that arise on a weekly basis in the aged care system. So we really, really can't wait And there are lots of things that the government can do in the short term. And the Royal Commission did kind of 
outline some really short-term things like boosting um, funding and some basic transparency measures. Uh, we could register all personal care workers fairly easily. We could mandate training requirements fairly easily. So these are things that need to happen uh, quickly. And then uh, to set up the new system, so the new kind of aged care program that they propose and the new funding mechanisms, uh, we propose that an independent aged care transition body should be established to really drive a cultural change in the way that aged care is managed and they should then be responsible for kind of thinking about and working and implementing these uh, more structural changes to the system and also phasing them in to make sure that they're working as they're implemented. So there are many things on the agenda and expectations are high following two years of a Royal Commission. The government must now show that this process was not a waste of time and money and make significant announcements in this uh, May budget, including a timeline for showing how it will address the Royal Commission recommendations. Well, we wait with bated breath for that May budget, it's something that's a big deal in the Grattan office here and a lot of our staff are fascinated and we'll have a lot to say about that upcoming budget. So we'll certainly have some podcasts around that topic. So thank you so much, Annika. As you say in this report, aged care reform is more than a political challenge. It's a moral imperative. You can read the report we've discussed today for free on our website, as well as all the other aged care reports we've produced in the series at grattan.edu.au. You can also keep talking to us about this particular issue on social media at Grattan Inst on Twitter and Grattan Institute on all our other social networks. Finally, I'd just like to say thank you so much for listening again and take care. <laughs>